We start this episode in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So Grady, Kuko and Dani Malela are, are bankers. Uh, may I add they are proud bankers. This is Gabriel Badun Fatal, a project manager at PLAF. He's talking about two whistleblowers from the Democratic Republic of Congo, Navi Malela and Grady Koko. They both really believe in the profession. They believe that their job is not only about managing money, but managing it properly. And they both met and bonded uh, when they both worked at the audit department of Afriland. Afriland First Bank, where the whistleblowers worked in the DRC, is going to be a major player in the story. The bank denied all allegations of wrongdoing. And of course, since they uh, saw what they saw and they decided in a combined way to act against it, uh, they bonded even more uh, because they share an experience that pretty much no one else in the world can understand. Welcome to The Witness. I'm Khadija Sharif. We are going to get back to Gabriel's story about whistleblowers in the DRC in a moment. First, you should know that this podcast series is brought to you by PLAF, the platform to protect whistleblowers in Africa and produced by volume. Throughout this series, we're going to explore what it takes to become a whistleblower and the incredible impact that these brave individuals can have. In this episode, we are looking at the topic of punishment and specifically what kind of punitive measures whistleblowers can face for simply doing the right thing. Now we get back to Gabriel from PLAF, who is describing the whistleblower bankers Navi and Grady. They are both very serious people, um, very dedicated, religious, a lot of passion about what they did, a lot of passion about what happened to them. Of course, it's better in their own words. So we all jumped on an internet call. <laughs> Bonjour, Gabriel. Bonjour, Navi. Bonjour. Gabriel interviewed Navi and Grady in French, so we will be dubbing over their voices in English. We first asked, what has been your process of becoming a whistleblower? Here's Navi. Uh, au départ, j'avais un peu, j'étais un peu stressé de savoir que c'était at the beginning, I was stressed to understand what was happening and how big it was, but then I decided to take my responsibilities in both hands because I was a witness for very serious irregularity and if I wouldn't blow the whistle, maybe no one would. So with Grady Coco, I decided to do this for the public interest in of my country and today I'm very proud of what I did. Here's Grady talking about the irregularities. In other words, bank accounts being held without having all of the documents that are required. The first irregularities appeared part of our work. We were working in the bank at auditors. So it's normal for you to notice irregularity and to file them. We had some suspicion about our management implication, but we never expected what happened next. When I talked to the director, he reacted with threats and intimidation. It's right all for me to follow the own guidelines of the bank. There's a central figure to these financial irregularities. Someone who our whistleblower Grady saw visiting the bank despite him being sanctioned was Dan Gertler. Like Afriland Bank, Gertler denied all allegations of wrongdoing. Here's Navi again. 
Oui, personnellement, euh, When we met him at the bank, I knew he was involved in mining in DRC and a friend of former President Joseph Kabila. I watched the commentary in YouTube showing how he bought mining assets in DRC and sold them for much more expensive price to multinationals. So I would describe him as an economic criminal in my country, which is Congo. Global Witness had been investigating mining and oiling deals in the DRC and identified a network of new companies that Gertler and his associates had moved from Gibraltar and the British Virgin Islands to the DRC. This, in turn, raised some red flags. So we started to, to map out this and kind of dig deeper. This is Margot Molat Dujodon, a campaigner and investigator in the DRC for Global Witness. And that's when we met up with CLAF. And we were actually working as part of the civil society coalition. And we met up in Uganda. And we were kind of sat at a table head meeting. And we came to realize that we were both holding one end of the stick. Like CLAF had identified uh, suspicious payments to entities. And we had identified those entities and suspected that those were connected to Gertler. So we decided to put kind of our brains together, build a puzzle um, and work on this investigation. Um, of course, at the time, we had no idea that this would take us over a year and that it would be kind of very lengthy, complex, detailed investigation and an incredibly like painful legal process. Here's Gabriel again. For many years, Dan Gertler has acted in the dark, uh, meaning he was not keen to uh, come forward in any way that is public. Um, a lot of articles and investigations came out about him. He commented very little on them publicly uh, and did not create for himself a public figure. He stayed in the, in the shade. Um, and although um, he was investigated by so many journalists for years, uh, it was only in 2017 when he was sanctioned by the US that his name really came out uh, as someone who was sanctioned for corruption. And the meaning of this is that no US entity or businessman uh, is allowed to do business with him in any way. Um, so for an international businessman, this is uh, extremely hard financially because this means that all cuts to the US, uh, all ties to the US need to be cut. This sanctioning is why seeing Gertler at the bank was so integral at the time. Well, when the whistleblower saw him in the bank, at the bank, they were quite alarmed because to have a sanctioned uh, businessman in your bank is uh, not great to say the least. Here's Margot again talking about Grady's challenges. He, he blew the whistle internally and then, and then kind of yeah, went through something traumatic and then ended up leaving the country and reaching out to PLAF. Um, and, and I remember him telling me his story and I thought, I mean, I, I, I was kind of heartbroken and actually he, he wasn't able to tell me the full story because it was so difficult for him. Um, but he, you know, he told me a little bit about blowing the whistle and how... I, th I think he was just trying to do his job. He was the auditing director of a bank. And as an auditor, you have responsibility towards external audit. And he noticed that bars were missing, that um, cash deposits were huge, that all sorts of like irregularities were happening. And he just wanted to do what was right. And so he wrote you know, this, this internal letter to, to the director and then was called into the director's office and I remember him telling me this sentence that when he went in there, the director said, 
look, the files you're looking for, they're not in the general archive room, they're in my office. And you can look at them, but what you see here, you keep it in your head, okay? Because these are important people we're dealing with. She then moves on to Navi. As for Navi, I mean, he took extreme risk because at this point, Kadi had left the bank and he was like, basically leaking additional bank records to Grady, who was already working with us. And he was well aware of the kind of risks he was now facing. And the investigation was advanced enough that we, you know, we knew that this this presented really high risk. And I mean, you know, Navi, again, was just so courageous to to go ahead and, and send those documents to help us expose the story and break it um, for everyone to read. And, and you know, and it, it didn't end well for him either. I mean, he reached a point where he, his security was at risk and he had to leave the country with his entire family. And, you know, they're all now safe and have been granted asylum in a European country. But but I'm just, yeah, I've, I've met them on several occasions and they're just full of life and joy. And, you know, they keep saying, oh, it's a bit cold, but we're okay. Um, and, and I'm just, yeah, amazed. Now let's dig a little deeper into this Dan Gertler character. He famously said that he deserved the Nobel Peace Prize for his work in DRC. So I think that gives you an idea of the character. He first started in the kind of diamond industry. Um, I think his father used to work on the diamond exchange in Israel. Um, so, so, you know, he's always been in kind of the mining, natural resource kind of business. Um and he um, was close to Joseph Kabila from the start, um, Joseph Kabila being like the former president of, of DRC. Um, and he basically created a mining, like an empire in DRC um, via his kind of close relationship um, with, with Joseph Kabila. And so the way, you know, he, he kind of famously went about it and, and in very kind of simple terms, is that he would act a bit as a gatekeeper or a middleman for, for the for the for the sector? I mean, you have to. I mean, you have to picture that DRC was just coming out of a civil of a civil war and like a, you know a very like like bloody conflict um, in the region, and so a lot of mining companies were reluctant to entering the sector, and so he acted as a broker. So he uh, bought mining assets and then uh, would sell them on to large multinational companies. The issue is that he because of his friendship with Joseph Kabila, is that he managed to buy these assets at a very low price and then sell them on at a very high price, kind of pocketing the the profit. So allegedly, um, you know, just between 2010 and 2012, for which we have very kind of solid information and numbers, um, he, um, you know, the DRC lost 1.4 billion off of five mining deals. Um, so it's, you know, it's like a huge chunk of money. And we know that there's been a lot more deals since and he continues to kind of receive large mining royalties and other revenues. Um, but, but you know, th there's been attempts to like civil society is still trying to calculate how much, you know, the DRC might have lost out on um because of some of his deals. Yet Gertler was still receiving mining royalties. Because Dan Gertler um, was, was able to use different 
types of tricks to kind of, um, well, tricks, uh, use different systems to obtain um, mining assets. And, and, you know, one thing that he did was to, to give a number of loans out to the state-owned mining company and the state-owned mining company would, like, fault on these loans and the collateral would be, for example, like royalty streams. Royalty streams is something that t- typically, like, would go to the government forever. Like, it would go to Jikamine and then and then to the government because every time, like, a, a foreign company is mining in the DRC, the royalties of that production should go to the government. The fact that those are now going to Dan Gertler means that the government, like, is losing out massively. This, in fact, shows that it doesn't all begin and end with Dan Gertler. Not only Dan Gertler was at the bank, but many other shady networks. So what came up from the whistleblower's information uh, was that the bank also hosted companies um, that were sanctioned by the U.S. for being uh, financiers of Hezbollah, uh, the Lebanese political group. Let's say that they were uh, defined as a terrorist group by the U.S. government. This is not necessarily um, something that other governments agree with. What is certain that uh, this is a group that has been revealed to be active in many countries, uh, in many capacities, um, involving a lot of money. Um, so what we are sure about is this is uh, a scheme that is well installed, uh, especially in DRC, um, and involves a lot of illegal uh, illegal operations. Uh, this is what we can say. But also, uh, the company, the the bank hosted companies that uh, were alleged by NGOs like the Century or Global Witness to um, also act as fronts for Hezbollah. Um, and one good example of this would be Industrie Forestière du Congo, IFCO, um, which Global Witness revealed as allegedly was allegedly involved in illegal logging in DRC. Um, so this network. Um, uh, was very active in all kinds of Congolese banks uh, in the past years. Uh, and unfortunately, Afrinand is part of them. So, for example, as uh, US NGO The Century revealed, um, North Korean businessmen were acting at the bank in very possible violation of UN, EU, and US sanctions. Um, a lot of companies we see at the bank that uh, are active financially are linked to financier of, of uh, Hezbollah. Uh, some of which have even been sanctioned by the U.S. for being financiers of Hezbollah, the, the um, Lebanese political and possibly terrorist group. And uh, other networks were also um, uh, present at the bank. For example, Richard Mouyège, the governor of rich DRC province, Lualaba, is uh, withdrawing thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash from the bank. Uh, you also can see that the account of the uh, Congolese Senate is at the bank and that millions in cash, uh, up to four million, I think, were withdrawn before the last election. Here's Margot going through the types of documentation that the whistleblowers revealed. But the most important ones are the relevé de compte, which are basically banking statements. So if you imagine like your bank statement from, I don't know, in my case, Lloyd's, um, you know, you have basic information which contains lines of transactions, dates, um, sometimes details about who you're transferring the money to or who you've received the money from. And then also will contain information about whether it's a transfer or a cash deposit. So we had those accounts for a series of companies and individuals that we had associated 
that we had kind of like mapped out as being associated to Dan Gertler. Um, and so and so so we had, I think, about 40 or 50 of those. Then we had um, an internal document showing uh showing that the a list of accounts that were managed by Patrick Pindo, which uh, was the director of the bank. And so um so so that's a list of accounts and we've actually found that all, almost all of the accounts that he was managing were of interest to us. Um, then we have the letter that Gadi um, kind of um, the, the whistleblower like sent to um, the management of the bank at the time, blowing the whistle. So basically, like flagging some accounts where he didn't have sufficient information about them, and then specifically like around Dan Gertler and saying, you know, that he was on the U.S. blacklist and and because he'd been sanctioned. So so there was a number of documents that we had. We also have the annual accounts for the bank. Um, for 2018, which actually contains a lot of information about how the bank performed that year. And I believe PAF also had an internal account uh, of the bank, which shows money coming in and out and a lot of kind of the cash deposits. They were suspicious. But the punishment that Navi and Grady faced was astounding. They were found guilty of all sorts of grounds. Um, I think it was forging documents, defamatory accusations um i think steal like theft of, of of documents breach of confidentiality there were a number of chiefs of accusation but they um you know they were found guilty in their absence in a court in kinshasa and sentenced to death so just to take a step back, i mean that is absolutely you know insane to think that could occur like even in a place like drc it's actually quite rare to um be sentenced to death uh, let alone in your absence without a lawyer even being present in the room and so you know to explain take a step back and explain a little bit about how this could have happened is that after after publishing the story um the bank um that was named in the report and that was holding the bulk of the suspicious accounts you know, went a bit on a hunt to understand who at the bank was responsible for the leak. And I guess they landed on these two individuals and filed uh, a set of complaints. And so they filed actually two different complaints, which contain exactly the same accusation, which in itself is very odd. And so the first complaint, they send two summons to summon these two individuals to court. And the first summon was sent to um William Bourdon's office. So William Bourdon is a kind of famous French lawyer and he um, is the founder of CAF, but he is not kind of acting on behalf of the whistleblowers or like not actually like involved into day-to-day kind of business of CAF because he's just the founder and I think maybe sits on the board, but he's not like managing the the the, the organization. So to that, um, you know, William Bourdon um, kind of well, sent a lawyer to to Kinshasa to the Kinshasa Tribunal to just kind of explain that the summons had been irregular because they should have been addressed directly to the whistleblowers or their lawyers, and they should have been sent to their address via Bailey. None of this happened, so he sent this lawyer to you know to sit in in the Kinshasa Tribunal, but but the other side never came, like they didn't show up. So the court was adjourned and, and adjourned and, and that was it. But what we didn't know is at the same time, 
another procedure had started and that summons had been sent to, to the address of the whistleblowers in Kinshasa, address at which they didn't, you know, they didn't live there anymore. Um, and it, it was quite surprising to us to see that they'd been sent to that address because we know from conversations with the lawyers of the bank that they had knowledge that the that the whistleblowers um, didn't live in Kinshasa anymore and they even had knowledge of where they lived. Um, so it was very kind of weird that they, they would send it to that address knowing that they didn't live there anymore. And um, the summons was signed by two neighbours that would support that were supposedly going to notify the the whistleblowers about the summons, but the the those are also irregular because it only contains the first name of the neighbors, and of course they never notified uh, the whistleblowers. So so then the trial this time went ahead. The other side did show up, and they found um, you know Grady and Nabi like guilty of all of these accounts of all of these counts, and then sentenced them to death. So, you know, it's just kind of having these two parallel procedures going on is, is, is you know, very questionable and, and you know, it needs to be probably investigated um, by, the, by the resting authorities in the RC because this is very unusual. And, and to think that that led to kind of a death penalty, which is quite rare, astonishing, um, so, so yeah, so that's, that's how it come, came about. The amazing part is that they bothered to do an actual second session, a fake one that sentenced the whistleblowers to death. It's very likely that a proceeding in parallel happened, um, especially when we later saw that two uh, judgments exist, a fake one and a real one, and the fake one was, um, was uh, mentioned by Affinant's lawyer. So Affinant's French lawyer, Eric Moutet, mentioned a judgment that was fake, uh, where fake allegations existed um, in front of, of uh, in front of, in the press conference in, in Kinshasa. So while we don't know exactly the details of the fraudulent procedure, um, for us it's obvious that uh, this is highly irregular and there was not even a resemblance to a proper legal procedure in this case. Here's Margot again. It was the same day. Uh, it happened the same day. So so you know, I mean. Obviously, I wasn't there, and, and this is through class lawyers, but you could imagine, you know, like the judges sitting in one, in, in a court, in the tribunal, and then and then the other side not showing up, and then the lawyers that um, were hired by class showing up, and then like maybe an hour later, the same people coming in the room, but this time going ahead. It, it's all very, very odd and, you know, needs to be looked into um further but i think it's been very shocking to see that for us for the whistleblowers for everybody who's you know worked on this case or been following it closely and you know there was responses from a number of embassies who were condemning this move like the eu parliament has you know had had we've had conversations about it with them like you know that i mean hopefully this will be overturned and cancelled because it's um it seems highly irregular to say the least here's grady again talking about what it was like to receive that death sentence la condamnation à mort normalement nous l'avons apprise par that sentence relaying about it took various media clippings i was outraged that media outlet just published it like that in the internet I didn't believe at the first. I 
chose it was a propaganda done by Afrolan against Jews. When I realized it was a real sentence obtained fraudulently by state, uh, a real code that uh, was given it, I was shocked. I could be sentenced to death because I revealed it that went against the interest of Congolese citizens of a billionaire to keep doing business in Congo in contrary to Congo interest. To learn about it, Chog Media was choking for me and my family. And also, I felt anger. And that anger pushed me and Navy to go public because we knew all that we revealed was true and can be verified. The whistleblowers escaped their fate because they had already fled to an undisclosed location in Europe, and they have managed to gain refugee status where they are. Basically, our investigation suggested that Dan Gertler, who was sanctioned, tried to set up a complex network of bank accounts, shell companies and proxies to evade um, the US sanctions and continue buying buying mining assets in DRC. Um, So there was one network clearly associated with Dan Gertler because, you know, we were able to trace it back to family relatives like his wife and some of his children. But then we also identified a number of new entities that seemed connected either by an address or a lawyer or because they had been friends with Dan. So this other network had ramifications in Europe and it seemed to have been laundering funds. So, you know, looking at this, we were able to trace some of the money to Israel um, to pay a lot of lawyers, for example. Um, Then we suspect some of it went to Europe. And then we also were able to trace some large payments to Jekamine, the state-owned mining company, um, with, you know, with whom Dan Gertler had been kind of dealing in the past. Um, I just want to kind of explain, like, what we're looking at is a lot of circumstantial evidence, right? So we're seeing like huge cash deposits, you know, sometimes up to six million in a day in six different like deposits of one million. We know that Dan Gertler walked into the specific banks. Uh, we know that people with zero experience in DRC or in the mining sector um, kind of pop up in this tiny bank in DRC and like drop cash off. And the only thing that they have that connects them to this country is Dan Gertler. Or the fact that, you know, the the bank accounts, all the new bank accounts that were opened in 2018 are all managed, at least, you know, 20, were all managed by the same director. And that um, and that the deposits just for those accounts of interest represented double the amount of the total deposit of that previous year. So, I mean, that's huge. And, and the bank's profit increased 350% just for that year. So when you kind of puzzle all of these things like these individuals their connection the addresses the the phone numbers the lawyers like all these things together you get kind of this map of this network which seems to have been laundering money moving cash around for Dan Gertler who was under sanction and who had real difficulty kind of accessing US dollars and the kind of regular bank system because of the way sanctions work um and so, and so that's you know what what our reporting was about and then also how he managed to kind of continue business in Congo and get new mining assets. 
Of course, you know, Dan Gertler denies any wrongdoing. And he's claimed that the documents that we have in our possession were stolen and forged. Um, he also said that the individuals that, you know, we've said have connection to him. He said that he didn't know any of these individuals uh, mentioned in our investigation and that they were not, you know, acting as proxies or on his behalf. Here's Gabriel again talking about the consequences that PLAF and Global Witness faced because of their work on this case. So what happened following the investigation of, of PLAF, of Global Witness and of uh, journalists across the world uh, was a severe attack uh, on many, many fronts. Um, there were tentatives of intimidation. Uh, there were attacks, uh, ridiculous attacks on social networks and an army of trolls attacking us and the whistleblowers with all, ki all kinds of fake allegations. And another front of this attack were um, uh, legal suits uh, filed against us in, in Kinshasa, against PLAF in Kinshasa, against the whistleblowers in Kinshasa, which resulted in a death sentence, and libel suits against us in Paris. Um, and in in uh, Israel against Haaretz, the media that also investigated Gerta. And those uh, suits against all of these parties um, were criticized by dozens of organizations across the world as slap, meaning suits that are not meant to bring justice, but are meant to intimidate and to exhaust us uh, financially and emotionally. But he also says they will survive. We have been very lucky to receive a lot of support and because uh, the attacks of Dan Gertler and, and Afriland, the bank where the whistleblowers worked, have been uh, clumsy. Um, but of course, uh, this is something we are aware of and um, we are putting a lot of resources in. Here's Margot on the public's reaction to their reporting. Yeah, I mean, the response was, was just overwhelming. We worked on the story with uh, three uh, mainstream media outlets, um, so Haaretz in Israel, uh, Le Monde in France and Bloomberg in the US and in the UK. And, and you know, it, it, it's just, it was so, it was picked up by so many different media in Israel. Uh, Haaretz ended up doing an exclusive weekend magazine. And, and this story was like the, the, the front page of that magazine and like the main story that they ran for that weekend. Um, so, so, you know, I, I still have people reaching out to me about specific bits of this investigation uh, almost a year later. So, I mean, I think we were quite surprised at how much this got picked up. And we also had, you know, conversations on the back of this with uh, U.S. law enforcement. So they've, they've, there's definitely been so much interest in the story. And, 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 you know, we look forward to seeing perhaps impact coming through. Um, but it's also had a resounding effect in DRC. Um, you know, new contracts were disclosed related to some of the companies that we'd identified um, through a mining license that had been uh, allocated. Uh, we saw civil society becoming, you know, quite vocal about some of our findings and trying to hold their um, government to account. We saw press conference organized by um, citizenship movements in DRC asking about specific mining assets and why had what what you know asking why are these being sold off why why is why is short-term gain here um being prioritized over long-term gain so um so it's you know it, it, it was it was fascinating to see the impact of this story and how it landed gabriel finished with how difficult it can be to work in the drc compared to other countries so plus protects whistleblowers across africa we have uh, offices uh, in dakar in south africa and also in Europe. 
why do we have an office in Europe is a question one might ask. And I think uh, our work in DRC has shown that we have to have an office uh, outside the continent. Because while in other countries like uh, South Africa, you have legal mechanisms to protect whistleblowers, even if they're not perfect, everybody acknowledges that, but you have legal mechanisms that you can use and that can be beneficial to whistleblowers to some extent. In DRC, it's a whole different story. Uh, in DRC, for example, you cannot require from a whistleblower to blow the whistle internally because unfortunately, from our experience and from whistleblower's experience, um, this can end very bad. Um, and the whistleblowers we've assisted in, in, in DRC, Jean-Jacques Lumumba, who has fled to exile, Gradi Coco and Navi Malala, who had to flee, um, Claude Mianzwila, who, who was imprisoned. Uh, all of these people, uh, even if you had a legal proceeding in case, were probably exposed to violence uh, either way. So the work of protecting whistleblowers in, in Congo is um, less about the legal framework at this point and a lot about uh, finding uh, quickly a protection mechanism uh, so they, they could save their life and their well-being. You can read the report Undermining Sanctions for more details. The report is produced by Global Witness and PLAF. You've been listening to The Witness. I'm Khadija Sharif. This podcast series is brought to you by PLAF, the platform to protect whistleblowers in Africa and produced by volume. For more information, visit plaf.org. Catch up on all episodes of The Witness wherever you get your podcasts. Goodbye. Volume.